This is Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. Bell Shakespeare would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded and produced on the lands of the Gadigal and Wongal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. The poor world is almost 6,000 years old, and in all this time there was not any man died in his own person, vitaliset, in a love cause. Troilus had his brains dashed out with a Grecian club, yet he did what he could to die before, and he is one of the patterns of love. Leander, he would have lived many a fair year, though Hero had turned none, if it had not been for a hot midsummer night. For, good youth, he went but forth to wash him in the Hellespont, and being taken with the cramp, was drowned. And the foolish chroniclers of that age found it was Hero of Sestos. But these are all lies. Men have died from time to time, and worms have eaten them, but not for love. Welcome to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm your host, James Evans, and that was Rosalind from Act 4, Scene 1 of As You Like It, read by our guest this week. She is Professor Emerita in English and Drama at the University of Sydney. Her major research interest is in performance history, and she's currently writing about Shakespeare performance history in Australia. Her previous publications include As She Likes It, Shakespeare's Unruly Women, The Cambridge Introduction to Shakespeare's Comedies, Teaching Shakespeare Beyond the Centre, and Jane Austen and the Theatre. She's edited Twelfth Night and The Merchant of Venice for publication and has contributed numerous essays to collections like the Cambridge Companions and Oxford Handbooks. She's also written program notes for theatre companies around the world, including the Royal Shakespeare Company and the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. It is my great pleasure to welcome Penny Gay. Penny, welcome to Speak the Speech. Thank you very much, James. Thank you so much for being here. Now, Penny, I know that you love Shakespeare's women, and in fact, you're probably one of the first people to write a book, a specifically feminist book, about Shakespeare's female characters. So what do you love about Rosalind? I love about Rosalind that she is articulate, she is witty, she says what she thinks, but she says it in a very interesting way. Mm. She engages her, her listeners, and we all want to do that. Um, so I also love the fact that she has to get dressed up as a boy to do that and in, that involves her in all sorts of complications which are amusing. Mm. But ultimately it's that extraordinary eloquence mm. that I love about a number of Shakespeare's women. And when you think that Shakespeare was actually writing for smallish boys and right. young adolescents, mm. it's extraordinarily impressive. Yes, it's extraordinary to think who was that... That adolescent who yeah. could carry off Rosalind or or even Cleopatra mm. or Juliet. I mean, it, they must have had incredible young actors then. Can you please give us the context of this speech? What part of the play is this? Who, who's she talking to? Ah, so she's talking to the bloke she actually fancies enormously. Yes. And he has fallen in love with her right back in Act One of the play when she is dressed as a woman and mm. she's at the court of the bad duke. But he seems to think that being in love, you have certain performances that yes. you have to go through and mm. you have to fold your arms and look sad mm. and mm. moon around and talk about dying for love. And in fact, the immediate preceding line to mm. this uh, glorious speech, uh, Rosalind says, well, in her, in her person, I say, I will not have you. Mm. 
and Orlando says, then in mine own person, I die. Yeah, you know, very he's, dramatic. He's, yeah. he's doing the, the <laughs> self-indulgent lover, and that's when she just puts the boot into this theory that anybody ever died yes. for love, yeah. especially healthy young men who, who can win wrestling matches, <laughs> which is what Orlando <laughs> is. So it's just this wonderful cut through that Rosalind has of the gender roles, the assumptions mm. uh, that were in the audience. Yes. I, I, I like to try and think of the original audience uh, listening to this boy playing a girl playing a boy mm. and thinking, oh, my gosh, this is astonishing. I never heard a woman. Well, perhaps my wife occasionally speaks like this, but I don't. You know, I don't listen to her. Well, right. you listen to Rosalind because she's yes. witty and she just takes you into really good thinking, but she mm. does it wittily. She does, and often don't you find in in many of Shakespeare's comedies, and also in in Romeo and Juliet. I'm going to call the first half of that play a Shakespearean comedy. Absolutely, the the the, the boys are kind kind of swanning about, not really knowing what it is to be a grown up, and it's the young women who have to teach them. You see it in Midsummer Night's Dream in this play in Romeo and Juliet, and that's what she's doing is she's teaching him how she to is. love. That's right, and that's of course the other thing I love uh, about Rosalind and the other clever young women of mm. Shakespeare, that they are all basically, they see themselves as teachers. They're stuck in a system yeah. that gives them apparently no authority mm -hmm. and they just say, okay, I've got a few things that you guys need to think about. Yes. And then they just tell you. And, they, and Shakespeare does it again and again. It's not an accident. Now, Rosalind is also deliciously irreverent with some of the greats of, of uh, Greek <coughs> myth here, uh, Leander and Hero especially. And, and, and Shakespeare keeps dipping back into Leander, doesn't he? He, he mentions Leander in, in Two Gentlemen of Verona and in, in Much Ado, Benedict compares himself to Leander the Good Swimmer. Um, even in Pyramus and Thisbe at the end of the dream, there's a, um, there's a, bit, a bit of a, I think he calls himself Lymander bottom in that in that moment. So so what does it mean to bring up Hero and Leander and then turn it on its head? Well, what Shakespeare is basically doing is appealing to almost what you might call pop culture. Mm. It's not quite, but anybody who's been a bit educated in that audience would know these ancient stories, these ancient Greek myths, the stories of transformations in Ovid. Yes. These were their... You know, this is even what you'd you'd tell stories that you'd tell kids. Yeah. Um, so it's stuff that you can make a familiar joke about, mm. and you can also just throw the line to people, and they think, "Oh yes, yeah, he's Leander. Yes, he died for love. Mm. No, he didn't." Says Rosalind. He <laughs> got a cramp when he went swimming at midnight. Um, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's it's. It is the sort of thing that you could imagine a smart kid staying, saying at home hmm. when they're being told the lovely romantic story of Hero and Leander and the kid's saying, yeah, well, what, was he doing? Yeah, what was he doing going swimming at midnight? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and Troilus as well, of course, uh, you know, boys uh, getting getting beaten up and, and killed in battle. He didn't die for love. He got killed by Achilles, right? That's right. He got killed by Achilles. And according to the notes in the edition I'm using, mm. um, he was killed in a much more noble Greek way right. with a, a spear or an axe by Achilles, you know, right. not Bashed out bashed with, with a club, a club. <laughs> so again, um, Shakespeare is just well, Rosalind is is undermining the nobility mm. of this sort of heroic death. But she also says in the the first half of that sentence, 
he did what he could to die before, meaning mm. he was playing that role of, oh, I am the lover I love, Cressida, you know, mm. I will moon around. Mm. Cressida, meanwhile, is off with every second bloke in, in the, the Greek right. army. Right. She doesn't have many lines either, which is interesting. She's not one of Shakespeare's, you know, mm. authoritative speakers mm. like, like Rosalind. You know, Rosalind is just saying here, these old stories, this is why we're in the mess we're in because right. people keep playing these conventional roles. Yes. Let's think about how to behave, as you've said, James, as grown-ups. Yes. Yeah. I think later in this play as well, or is it earlier? I can't remember. Phoebe does a similar thing to yes. Sylvia. Sylvia mm. says, I'm dying. And, mm. and she says, really? I'm looking at you. And why aren't my eyes killing you then? Mm. Where does this notion come from that the, the lady's eye could could kill the gentleman with a look? Is, is it from Petrarch? Is it? I think it is. I mm. think it is Petrarch. And, and it's, you know, it's probably sounds very elegant in Italian or indeed also in French. Yeah. Later in King Lear, we have, um, is it Goneril or Regan talking about uh, uh, the gorgeous um, Edmund's yards, yes. his, <laughs> <laughs> um, his, his looks, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I just think it's, there, there is a lot to be said for the notion that the eyes are the window of the soul, mm. The um, certainly they often contribute very strongly to the attractiveness of the person that you're looking at. So it's something that that they took over. All the poets that just preceded Shakespeare mm. in the mm. 16th century took it over straight from Petrarch right. um, and other uh, Italian and indeed French re- Renaissance poets. Mm. Um, so that again, by the time you're hearing this play in maybe 1600 or 1599, mm. you recognise these clichés and yeah. you're, you, you're asked to stop and think about them and, as you see, say, that speech from Phoebe, which is earlier, mm. sets up this whole notion that even a country girl can mm. see that it's ridiculous to talk about dying for, dying love, for love or being killed by somebody's eyes. Yeah, I love the way Shakespeare skewers that. And in Twelfth Night as well, Orsino, you know, Viola's telling him a story and, and straight away he asked, you know, did she die for love? Did, did she die of her love? I think what that play does is undermine the fact, that the, the, the myth that men feel more or feel more deeply than women. That, that comes up again and again, doesn't it? Yes, yes. Well, yes, Orsino actually says, mm. um, I but we men feel more. Yes. Uh, and she just demonstrates in her speech, which is far more genuinely mm. poetical, more mm. complex and interesting, yeah. that there's a well yes. in her heart mm-hmm. that, you know, is being mined emotionally. It's much more complex. The thing about the blokes is they've had the education, they've got the cliches to hand, yes. they know what to think. Mm. Um, the girls have to make their way mm. in a very, very male-ordered world mm. and try and find themselves a life and hopefully a, a good lover. Then, then, Penny, what do you make of uh, Love's Labour's Lost and that big speech from Barone where he, t- he talks about, you know, I learned about art and the world from a woman's eye, a lady's eye, a, a lover's eye will gaze an eagle blind and so on. It seems like the opposite <coughs> concept, or, or is it? Look, I think you have to read Love's Labour's Lost backwards, actually. Okay. What do you mean? <laughs> what, do you mean? <laughs> what I mean is that um, in the last scene or thereabouts, the, the whole last act is just one long scene, I think, with a lot of people coming in. And Barone is told very firmly 
by the lady he loves, mm. uh, who's also got a name, Rosalind or Rosaline, mm. um, that if he actually does care about her and wants to make a life with her, yeah. he should get out in the real world and go and help sick people. Right. Yeah. Uh, spend a year mm. in a hospital. Mm. That's the real world. Yeah. I think what Barone, I mean, we know that Barone is witty, he's clever, he's much the most interesting of that, those group of sure. four young men. Mm. But again, he is stuck in his own education, yes. if you like. Mm. And that long speech about women's eyes, etc., yeah. is it's two things. It's it's a showing off of how well educated he is, but also from a look, a psychological point of view, this is a young man who is defending himself against having to get to know women because frankly they are scary. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then along along comes uh, Rosalind and, and proves exactly that. Yeah. That she is scary because she questions mm. um, his his attitudes. Yeah, who is your favourite of of Shakespeare's women? Wh- which is the one where he just really nailed it? Is it Beatrice? Is it Rosalind? Is it Juliet? Is it Cleopatra? Who is it? <laughs> <laughs> Look, um, it's Beatrice. Right. Uh, I love Beatrice yeah. because she's so modern, and again, she is on the the attack defence the whole time, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I mean, she's got an interesting case of, you might say, she's. Uh, you often see her in, in productions. She The first time you see her, she's reading a book or yes. she's being intellectual. Yes. There was a wonderful production decades ago by the Royal Shakespeare Company where um, she was playing the cello. Oh, yeah, yep. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, everybody else was flibberting around yeah. and there she was being intellectual. So she's already got, a, she's, she's managed to get a bit of that oh, I can defend myself against love and the world and anything it throws at me simply by being witty. Mm. And uh, then, of course, you have that extraordinary tricking scene, bang, in the middle of the play. Mm. And then she gets up and she starts off on a Shakespearean sonnet. Yes. What fire is in mine eyes? Can this, mine ears, can this be true? Mm. Um, and sees that for all her wit and mm. education, Oh dear, yes, she does actually love this fellow. Right. And yeah. hopefully he might just love her too. So uh, look, I think I, I can t- I can see why Benedict could be an attractive bloke. But what do you make of Orlando and Orsino in in mm. as you like it and Twelfth Night where the women just kind of run rings around mm. them intellectually H- how do we believe that they they can fall in love with them? How? Well, first you've got to cast extremely handsome and attractive men. <laughs> okay, sure. Number one. <laughs> that's, that's your job, theatre company. <laughs> and sometimes I, you know, the Orlando comes on or the Orsino comes on and I, and my heart sinks and I think nobody could fancy him. Okay. Come on. Okay. Um, so that's your responsibility, <laughs> theatre company. Um, I used to say to my students, look, as you like it, will work as long as you cast two most beautiful and clever young actors, one M, one F, mm. um, in your company. Right. Find them. Mm-hmm. Let let them loose on it. Um, but that's, of course, an impossible dream often. But, um, yeah, they are unsatisfying and particularly Orsino. Um, yeah. Mean, he is a demo, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what does Viola see in him? I mean, honestly. Ah, yes. I think, you know, you can do your psychoanalysis on Viola. She's lost her her beloved brother, her twin brother, or she believes she has, who clearly has been the man who protects her from all the hard things. Suddenly Mm. she's thrown into a a world where she's got to 
run by herself. Mm. And, of course, she says, then I will serve this duke. I need to get back to somewhere where there's a man running the place. Right, right. Um, but also, as I'm sure you know, you know, really the most interesting stuff that goes on is between um, Viola and, and Olivia. And Olivia, of yeah, course. Yeah, because Olivia um, is a very modern young woman who sees this young boy and fancies him like mad. Mm-hmm. And then it turns out that the young boy is actually a young girl. Mm. Um and again, that's wonderful opportunities for Olivia to say, "Oh, oh, okay. Well, I'll I'll take the boy, but um, you know, yeah, quite like that girl. Sure. Um, sure. The the scenes with Orsino, I think we probably again just have to think of them as saying to the audience, "Is this what you want in a love scene? Right. Do you want a mooning yes. duke, uh, a mooning lover?" Mm, mm. Um, and uh, then you get Olivia, uh, so you get Viola saying, look, no, it's not like that. There's heart. There is genuine hard Mm. feelings, you know. Mm. But again, for my money, it's it's the the speech to um, uh, Olivia. Make me a willow cabin. Yes, yes. yes. What would you do, says Olivia. Mm. Mm. And she says, make me a willow cabin at your gate and ends up and cry out, Olivia. Mm. And if that doesn't floor Olivia, nothing will. <laughs> That's right. No, it really does. Yeah. And she doesn't, Violet doesn't have the chance to say that direct stuff to Orsino. Mm. She has to keep on pretending. And I think, you know, you've got to remember that opening image of Viola as a shipwrecked young woman. Mm. Mm. She is looking for She's shelter. She's traumatised, yeah. Uh, and as long as Orsino is you know, handsome and rich and good-mannered, perhaps that'll be all right. Right, yeah. yeah. You're listening to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. My guest today, Penny Gay. Now, Penny, Shakespeare has been a part of your life for so long. Do you, can you reach back and remember when is it that that spark was lit for you? I've got two answers. Okay. First one was I was at university, so, you know, we'd done Shakespeare at school. Yeah. Boring. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the year of the show, you how old I am. It was the year of the Shakespeare, I think it's called Quarter Centenary. It was 1964. There were two productions of Hamlet at Melbourne University. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them was starred um, a local radio announcer yes. who thought of himself as having a very beautiful voice. Sure. <laughs> um, and it was all done in velvet and silk and it was in a proscenium art stage and it was boring right. ass. Mm. Uh, and I thought, oh, that's Hamlet. And then um, <laughs> another one was done by the Student Drama Society mm. in a, this is relevant for the Bell Company, mm. circus tent. Oh, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. On mm. the main lawn of the arts building. Right. Um, with Hamlet in jeans and the, you know, the hanging out white shirt, a mm. uh, great tall, you know, man who's obviously very uh, conflicted but not in a sort of whoopy way. Yes, Just yeah. mm-hmm. uh, very, very energetic and extremely energetic. Uh, Ophelia um, clearly desperately in love in, a, a very, again, a very modern way mm-hmm. uh, and it was completely riveting. It right. was the difference between playing Shakespeare as some bit of ye ancient culture and saying this is a story that is 
can be about today. Yes. People have conflicted relationships mm. now. Mm. So that was that was a great starting point. Right. And then I went off and went to London and did a PhD on totally other subject. Yes. And got a job <laughs> back at Sydney University and um, there was a very good uh, Shakespeare scholar there at the time, a man called Adrian Coleman, mm. and he said, look, the English department should put on Shakespeare. Mm. Uh, and I said, that sounds like a good idea. He said, um, would you be interested in being in it? I said, well, yeah. Wow. I haven't done the acting, but, you know, okay. <laughs> I can speak. Um, and we put on Cymbeline mm. and he cast me as Imogen. Wow. And that was absolutely transformational. I literally changed the course of my scholarly life because I had to learn those lines. Right. I had to examine that character. I yeah. had to – and I suddenly got the sense of – Mm. why the lines were written and um, why the plays were written. Yeah. And um, and at that point, so I fell in love with the first, you know, girl playing a boy yes. who's suddenly abandoned by her protection system. Mm. And uh, because it's a late play, it's got a lot of very chunky speeches. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we had to do some filleting mm -hmm. just to get through it in time. But... Um, just the the insights, the mm. psychological insights, I thought. And so then I started exploring all the other female characters. And the other nice thing was at Sydney University in those days, every other person doing Shakespeare was a male professor. Yes, right. And yeah. they were only interested in the tragedies okay. and yep. the history plays mm -hmm. for obvious gender-biased reasons. Sure, sure. So I sort of rather nervously put my hand up in a... Mm. a curriculum planning meeting and said, do you think I could run a course on Shakespeare's comedies? Mm. I'm interested in the women, you know. And did they think that was too flippant or...? No, they no. said, oh, that sounds like, yeah, sure, you know, more or less implying, well, I don't know anybody do it. But, yeah, right. Well, of course, they did and became a huge success. Yeah, um, yeah. And that was what got started me on the writing the, uh, the book called As She Likes It about Shakespeare's unruly women. Shakespeare's unruly women. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Who's the unruliest of of them all? Oh, Kate in the Shrew, yeah. of course. Yeah. Um, how do you how do you approach that play these days? I mean, Taming of the Shrew seems to me to be so deeply problematic. Have we figured out how we can do that in the twenty first century? I I have seen several very satisfying productions, mm. um, which I'm pleased to say. I've also seen some terrible ones. Sure. They do involve our sense that, that Kate or Catherine, as she prefers to be called, is, again, negotiating her way mm. in a, a system, a, a patriarchal system that is so against her. Yeah. And um, she has to negotiate a long way. She has to, you know, she gets herself into this extraordinary marriage. Mm. Um, but... We see the first time that she meets Petruchio that they do share that ability to have witty banter. So you can see her saying to herself, well, I can talk to this chap. Mm. Um, maybe in due course yes. we'll be able to have fun chats around the fireside. Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the big question is is the big speech at the end. But uh, there's a very easy to answer to that and it's been used for decades now. You play it with some degree of irony. Irony, sure. Uh, and mm. any good actress can can do that. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard, though, because she does say, uh, put your hand under your husband's foot. Uh, although, I suppose, if you played it ironically, yeah. then, then you mean the opposite. Well, also, th- that can be a lovely, lovely moment in the play. Mm-hmm. She finishes the speech. She may have been, apparently, to all the audience, all the people at the, at the, um, the dinner, she may have sounded totally convincing. But Petruccio is sitting there mm. and he's feeling, he's squirming. Right. Right. as he hears what it is that he is invested in. So he uh, knows that, uh, that it's not going to go the way he wants. Is that he, right? Well, no, I just think she is spelling it out. This is how you are a woman mm-hmm. in a patriarchal society. Yeah. And so she's teaching him again, right. you know, mm. that, that, old, that very useful trope. Yeah. And then at the moment where she says, and put your hand beneath your husband's foot, mm. I have seen moments which are just heartbreaking where Petruccio... He won't do it. Right. He won't let right. it happen. He'll take her hand and kiss it. You know. So he's transformed in, it's in that trick. Yeah. It's the trick of the silent stage direction. Yes, yes, yes. Um, mm-hmm. What do you do in response to this apparent stage direction? Put your hand mm-hmm. under his foot. Mm-hmm. It's Petruccio's call. He's got to respond to it. And it can be lovely. So what about the, what about the scenes earlier where he's essentially gaslighting her, telling mm. her that, you know, mm. up is down and left yeah. is right. Yeah. How, do you, how do you justify those? You don't justify them. He is, in fact, just, he is in fact gaslighting her. Mm. Um, and, again, it's, it's, I've seen good actresses just redeem those scenes by saying, well, you know, if you want me to play that game, sure, I'll play it, but I know exactly what you're doing, right. which is different from classic domestic violence gaslighting. I, I think the domestic violence is more worrying earlier in the piece when they get back to uh, Petruccio's house because yeah. um, that sun and moon scene that you're talking about is, mm. is a little bit later. Yes. Um, where he starves her mm. um, and refuses to and deprives her of sleep. Of clothing, yeah. And, and her favourite clothes and all that. I think that, that for me, that sequence of scenes is the hardest mm. in the whole play. Yeah. And I have seen, again, you know, for actresses whom I respect, it's the moment where they think, God, this is hard. Mm. This is hard. Can I do it? And you'll notice that Kate's got a a sort of a a soliloquy. It's not exactly that. She's chatting to, I think it's Tranio, one of the servants. Mm. Um, And and she says something like, you know, am I I never going to be allowed to eat um, or sleep? And he, Tranio, if it is Tranio, uh, can't, you know, virtually says nothing because he can't help because he's also stuck in the system. He's right. a servant. Yeah. But it's like it's a tragic moment for Kate, for, in, in my opinion. Yeah. It's the yeah. closest you get. And then she's got to take a deep breath and then you get the sun and moon scene mm. and she thinks, all right, if he says that's the, that's the moon and I know it's the sun, we'll just play that game. Right, right. So, yeah, it's 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 fascinating and and deeply troubling play and and directors and um, producers have to tread so carefully when mm. they're, when they're when mm. they're working with it. Mm. But I think it can be done. And I also think, and this is my main point about why I do all this stuff, is that these plays, because they are about gender dynamics and about um, situations that we recognise, we can, without in any way altering the language. Mm. Uh, we can simply say to the audience, you recognise this, don't yeah, you? Yeah. Let's think about it. The, the, the plays are, among other things, machines for helping us think 
So, Penny, you've been teaching undergraduates for decades. Mm. How how has their attitude changed over the years to Shakespeare? Are we becoming more distant, less connected to Shakespeare, do you think, young people? I find that if you can actually make space in the timetable, mm. as certainly we managed to do for a couple of decades, for students to actually get up and work on the scenes, yes, um, it's yeah. magic, mm-hmm. absolute magic, no question. Yeah, you need um, that. And to acknowledge yeah. that it's mm. it's a play. It's not a, You're not teaching in, no. a novel. They, they yeah. look at the words on the page and they think, oh, God, that's not proper English. You know, mm. I can't read that. Mm. But... Um, if you're there as the tutor saying, look, that's what this line means or just emphasise that word mm. and how does that make you feel? Where will you stand? So I'm, as a teacher, that was what I found worked. Students come with, if they've been lucky, they've seen a terrific Shakespeare production at yeah. some time during their teenage or childhood years yes. or they've seen a good film um, so they know that it can be terrific. Mm. Then they look at it and they think, oh, dear, this is just too hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's our job as teachers just to say, look, there's a pretty good scene here from, you know, As You Like It. Yep. Um, it's about a girl pretending to be a boy so as to educate a boy about how he might be a better, you know, wooer and lover. Mm. Sounds interesting. Yeah. You know, yeah. let's have a go at it. Um, but as our as our language changes inevitably and even from 10 15 years ago <laughs> language has, has shifted so much i'm concerned that we're getting further away from shakespeare and that for young people it becomes harder and harder to access to to find those access points are, are you concerned about this for the next 20 30 years well yes i am because i'm concerned about the state of teaching of the arts in the universities indeed yes um with um failure on so many um, institutional points to to support mm. arts arts education. We know that uh, a good arts education readies a person for anything. Yep. Um, they they will be able to think. They will be able to express themselves. Mm. And you know, a bit of Shakespearean language doesn't do them any harm there. Yeah. Um, yeah I'm concerned, but it's a bigger picture than just Shakespeare. Right. I know, as I said a few minutes ago, that if you make space to work with the Shakespearean text. And this happens in schools too, of course. I only know university work, but I know there are some wonderful teachers in schools. No doubt, yeah. um, And they've got a little bit more time there Mm -hmm. to work on things. So you often get students deciding, after all, yes, they will do an arts degree, even though it's going to be very expensive. Well, yeah. Um, Yeah. And they will do English one because they, you know, they once read a book that they enjoyed or Mm -hmm. they saw a a film of a Shakespeare play or they even saw a live show Mm. and then it's our job to say you could actually gain a whole lot more skills and get a whole lot more joy in what you're doing Mm. by, um, you know, just just learning these. I I think of, you know, teaching as I'm just trying to give students tools Mm -hmm. and I hope we all are, tools to get into this stuff and... It is true that you need to make it attractive to them in the first place, mm. but as I say, the, there are enough good, um, you know, film and video productions. Uh, I, I would so strongly advocate always doing Shakespeare in modern dress. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I think the worst put off is anything, any visual 
indicator that this is not about today. I see, yeah. Yeah, that it's it's a museum piece. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, And look, it's lovely for designers and it's lovely for (laughs) middle-aged people who've got some sense of the history of of costume and design and Mm. so on to think about why you might set it in this or that period. But as far as young people are concerned, I think you've absolutely got to put it into modern dress. And then you could say, yeah, you can have a crown because, yes, you're playing a king. Right. Um, it's not, you know, you mm. don't have to pretend to be the CEO of a major office. But yeah. um, <laughs> I mean, which presumably was the way that Shakespeare's own company did costumes, <laughs> you know. They would have um, had their own doublet and hose and thrown a, thrown a toga over the top That's perhaps right. to indicate... Um, That's right. Ancient Rome. Mm. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, Sydney University announced it was considering cutting the Department of Theatre and, oh. and Performance Studies. Have you had any conversations with your colleagues, with administrators, with with anyone that you know about that process? What's happening? I'm afraid I can't answer that because although I do get the correspondence, I'm out of the and again because of COVID, none of us are having you know the the coffee breaks. Yes, I'm, I'm not there. Yeah. Nobody's there. Mm. Um, I I read the emails. Mm. I think it seems to have come out of absolutely left field. Everybody is gobsmacked. Right. Right. Um, and I, you know, the 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 administration talks the usual talk. Of course, there will be discussions, and mm. you know. Mm. Um, but you think it's a fait accompli? It's done. Look, I I. Having looked at that sort of language over the decades, mm. I reckon it's a cover for a fait accompli and I'm only assuming that um, uh, in some way there'll be a subsection of the English department. I see, yeah. But the yeah. trouble is the English department itself has also lost so many staff and yeah. so many specialties. I mean, it, there's so little uh, time and space allowed to... In, Introducing students not only to Shakespeare but to metaphysical poetry mm-hmm. or the Victorian mm. novel, those lovely big books mm. that are the perfect, you know, airplane novel, should we ever be allowed to get on <laughs> airplanes again. Um, nothing like a lovely big Dickens novel. Sure. These avenues of, of joy and skill and learning are simply being closed off to students by this utilitarian attitude. Yes, isn't that sad? sad. And short-sighted as well, because surely our society needs leaders who are skilled in critical thought. I mean, Mm. we can teach technical skills Mm. at any time to anyone, but but critical thought is something that needs to be nurtured. Critical thought, and it needs to be nurtured at the page level, Yes, at the let's look at this speech, Mm. what is this character Mm. trying to do with his or her language? Mm. You know, Mm. it's all about using language as power. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Penny, um, of course, your expertise is in Shakespeare, but also in Jane Austen. And uh, I've, I've got to tell you, I'm a bit of a Jane Austen fan myself. Uh, and I, You know, I love, uh, it's particularly Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, Mansfield Park. Now, I tried to I tried to play my wife that wonderful BBC version of from the 90s of Pride and Prejudice, Colin Firth and, and so on. And she wouldn't have a bar of it. We got about 15 minutes in and she said, right, look, I don't care who wants to go to the ball and who's got 10,000 a year and who's obsessed with marriage. And Penny, I've got to tell you, I had no comeback and so mm. we just switched over to The Undoing or Veep or something. <laughs> um, but uh, but what is your <laughs> pitch for Jane Austen? What can I go back with to, to say that, no, 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 I think you'll really enjoy this? Mm. Um it sounds to me like your wife does not need to watch the telly but to read the book Good, because okay. um, the opening of Pride and Bridges, for example, which is 
as you may remember, a, a scene of, you know, perfectly written drama. Mm, mm. Um, but it's Jane Austen's voice that is creating the narrative. It is mm. a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of good fortune must be in want of a wife. <laughs> so it's it's a Rosalind speaking. Sure, she's a yeah. Ros- she's She's got... That irony going, yes, yes, and yeah. that way of looking at the world, mm. uh, and then she introduces the characters, Mr. and Mrs. Bennet, um, mm. the silly sisters, the sensible sisters, and I think, you know, if she, if your wife could be persuaded to read a yes. little, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. she would see. She was probably looking at that television and getting that visual stopper that right. um, I. Have already mentioned it as being problematic. You put it into the '90s version of what you think young ladies yes. in 1811 wore, mm-hmm. um, and particularly in the makeup. And if you're a woman, you're always aware that on television, the makeup you can tell to a decade exactly mm. when it was made because the you know yes, makeup head, etc. Yeah. Um, mm. And that can be very, very distracting. And of course, you don't care about. I don't care about what people, you know, wore to the ball <laughs> then. But what I do care about is the position of five young women mm-hmm. and their mum yeah. um, trying to see a future for themselves yes. when the only actual future is finding a husband with enough money mm. to to pay for their um, their income. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and how do and they how do they get around that or rise above that? Get around it or rise above it, and of course, you know the whole courtship between Elizabeth and Darcy is absolutely Beatrice and Benedict all no over doubt. again. Mm. Um, mm. It is very very clear, as I argued in my book, that Austen knew her Shakespearean comedies extremely well yes. and lifted from them with great glee. Sure, yeah, um, which is terrific. Um, and you argue she was very the- theatrical, Jane Austen, in her very, writing as well. Very yeah. theatrical. Mm. Um, Yes, this notion that Jane Austen didn't like the theatre is derives from basically two very influential critical essays in the middle of the 20th century. And honestly, we need to get over that. Yeah. <laughs> they, those two critics back in the 1940s mm. and early 50s were wrong. Okay. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Where else does Shakespeare pop up in, in Jane Austen? I mean, Beatrice and Benedict is such a great example. Mm. Where else do you see the influence of Shakespeare in Austen? I think what Austen understands about Shakespeare is that Shakespeare was the first and, in my opinion, the only period playwright from that period, the mm. um, Elizabethan Jacobean period, who actually understands the psychology of human interactions mm-hmm in a way that we still understand. Yeah. Now, other playwrights of the period understood, you know, had different notions of the relations between people. And you can, so you get these Jacobean horror stories sure. and so on, and you get horror things today too. But in terms of ordinary people trying to make sense of their lives, mm. their relationships, um, I think Shakespeare had that psychological insight and I would also say that so does Jane Austen. She is mm-hmm. very, very interested in things like the family unit, yeah. siblings, uh, as well as the courtship story that, you know, mm. you can all write love stories, that's fine. Mm. But it's the embeddedness mm-hmm. of this is a, a father who doesn't understand his children, for example, like like King Lear, you know, yeah. um, 
uh, that sort of, or the question of, of what do you do if you've been given authority, which is too great for you. Yes. All those sorts of things mm -hmm. are there in Austen. And although you can, uh, there is a lovely, lovely scene in Mansfield Park mm. where technically the villain, Henry Crawford, picks up the volume of Shakespeare that is, in, of course, in every respectable every drawing home. room sure. and does the open at any page trick yes. and starts reading. Um, we deduce, critics deduce the scene from um, Henry VIII mm. where um, uh, Wolsey makes a farewell to his greatness okay. um, and um, does it extremely well. Mm. And he then, Henry Crawford, the villain, mm -hmm. has a terrific speech about Shakespeare, one knows him, you know, without even realising it. it right. It's in our blood. Yeah. Mm. And you think, yeah, that's right, Henry, and you mm. are a good reader of Shakespeare. Um, but you're awfully like one of Shakespeare's terrific villains, yes. like, you know, <laughs> Richard III or, or Iago. Mm. You can just, you mm. can talk your way. Manipulate, you're, yeah. You, mm. And you're a very, very good talker because you understand human psychology mm. also. Penny, it's been so great to talk to you today. Now, just before we wrap up, we've got this segment called The Final Five. Okay. I'll give you five quick questions, mm -hmm. five quick answers. Here we go. Number one, which do you prefer, the lover, the villain or the fool? See my last answer? Villain. <laughs> villain. I love those villains that chat to the audience yeah. and manipulate them. What's your most underrated Shakespeare play? Uh, again, as you might have guessed from our earlier discussion, Cymbeline. Nobody yes. ever does Cymbeline. It's a terrific play. It's full of fairy tale tropes. Yeah, yeah. It's got wicked queens and poisons and, mm. you know, lost brothers and and the heroine comes back from apparent death. I mean, it's got just ticks every box. It's terrific. Penny, who is your favourite artist that you'd love to work with one day? Oh, uh, if I were in the theatre business, I would love to work with the, the wonderful Lee Lewis. Oh, Lee, yes, um, yes. Who has just, of course, gone up to Queensland mm. to run the Queensland Theatre Company, mm. but who did such wonderful work here at Griffin mm. um, and, of course, did uh, terrific productions for Bell Shakespeare. Mm. Uh, I thought uh, the literati was just oh, yeah. fabulous <laughs> um, and her... Twelfth Night, the 2010 Twelfth Night, mm. is one of my top 12th nights of all time. Right. Um, Lee was a student of the Sydney University English Department yeah. a long time yep. ago. You know, mm -hmm. these things come around. You think, mm. okay, whatever we did then, it yep. can't have it been worked. wrong. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I love her intelligence and her ability to clearly bring out the relevance of apparently ancient classical plays, you mm. know. Mm. Penny, you, you played Imogen. Uh, which Shakespeare role would you love to play? I think I would like to play Viola, actually, mm. yeah. which is not... I mean, I wouldn't be playing myself, you know. Yes. Uh, but the poetry is so gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, I would then have to deal with, well, why do I want to marry this dim-witted duke, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and finally, if you weren't teaching and writing about Shakespeare and performance, what do you think you'd be doing? Well, clearly, as I'm retired, I wouldn't have been doing anything else. But had I had the talent, um, I think I would have liked to be a musician. Oh, yeah. I would have, yep. I would have liked to play in a classical orchestra, possibly mm. the clarinet. It's oh, a yeah. nice instrument. Mm. And that would mean that in my downtime I could play in a trad jazz band. So I reckon that would be a winner. 
Amazing. Penny, thank you so much for joining me today on Speak the Speech. James, it's been terrific fun. And as you could hear, I could witter on all day about Shakespeare. <laughs> it's, it's a pure joy for me to talk about Shakespeare. I love so it. Thank you. I love it. Me too. Bell Shakespeare is Australia's national Shakespeare company. We perform in theatres and schools in every state and territory. If you'd like to support our work or to learn more about what we do, please visit bellshakespeare.com.au. Speak the Speech is produced by Bell Shakespeare and edited by Camillo Zanoni. Be sure to follow at Bell Shakespeare on social media and don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the Speak the Speech podcast through your listening platform.